Sermon Index Classics, featuring the vintage audio sermons from the past century. Welcome again to Sermon Index and today's program featuring some of the best sermons preached in the last century. This program is provided by the Ministry of Sermon Index. For more messages, log on to our website, www.sermonindex.com. Now, here's today's program. to righteousness, but God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin. I like that past tense, that ye were servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, being then made free from sin, ye became servants of righteousness. First Timothy chapter 4. Verse 16, take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine, continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt save both thyself and them that hear thee. Let's pray. Father, it's your grace that we need and loan for and desire. Lord, this morning we need your grace to reveal the scriptures, the sacred scriptures of your word to our hearts. Father God, we know, Lord, that it's by your grace that we are saved and not of works, lest that we should boast. Father, work in us, Lord God. Stir in us, Lord God, a deep longing, Lord, for your grace and your presence. Father God, move in us, Lord God, and Lord, that the very faith that you have given unto us, Father God, that it will be stirred and awakened and raised up, Lord, whereby we might lay hold of the promises of God and see them to come to pass in our life and our generation and within the church. Father God, give us an understanding today of the word of God, that we would not be deceived nor we would be blind concerning the word of truth. Give us an understanding lest the adversary come and steal away the good seed of the word. Give us a hunger and thirst for righteousness that we might please you. And Father God, give us grace unto life. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been talking the last several weeks about doctrine and does doctrine matter. And I think after two weeks of preaching in this regard, we do understand that doctrine does matter. I think that we have come to that conclusion. So today we're going to continue on in that same stead, in that same direction, and we're going to continue to talk about about doctrine. Um, we talked last time about um, the chief end of man. Not only do we want to talk about our need for doctrine, we want to talk about what doctrine is. We need to have a basic, fundamental understanding of the tenets of the faith, the doctrines of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that we'll be able to stand on the day of evil. We're living in very turbulent times. There are a lot of spirits out there that say they're Jesus Christ, that are not Jesus Christ. The only way that you'll be able to measure between the true and the false is if you have that word, doctrinal truths, written upon your heart. The reason I know that an error is an error is because I have the Word of God, doctrinal truth written upon my heart, the tablets of my heart. Then I can say, that is a lie because the Word of God says this. The Bible says that we are many times children and we're tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. There are a lot of winds of doctrine that are blowing out there in the market of religious fanfare today. And there are a lot of people that have no doctrinal foundation nor understanding that are falling by the wayside, that are falling prey, that are succumbing to the powers of evil that are at work within doctrinal error. Beloved, it is my greatest concern that we be 
rooted and grounded in Christ through solid biblical preaching and solid biblical doctrine. The greatest threat to the church today is not pornography. The greatest threat for the church today is not adultery. The greatest threat to the church today is not homosexuality. The greatest threat to the church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is doctrinal error, doctrinal heresy, doctrinal apostasy. Then, beloved, we have the very means by the Holy Ghost and the sovereignty of God to be equipped against it, to be able to stand firm as a mighty fortress rooted and grounded in our God. And we need this in our lives today. We talked... Um, I'm yelling. My wife's been scolding me that I yell too much. But to me, it's not yelling, it's excitement. Let me tell you something. The foreknowledge of God and the predestination of God was in His will that I would have a loud and strong voice. I saw a picture just this week that was drawn of John Wesley that was standing in a place in England, and it is a natural amphitheater to where he was standing, and around the sides of this hill were 20,000 people, and they had no electricity in those days. Benjamin Franklin had not been born yet. The dude with the kite and the key had not been born yet, although God had a plan for him. He had not been born yet, and there was no audible transmission other than vocal they didn't have a megaphone. They didn't have a microphone. Sometimes I wish we didn't have them today, especially when they're squealing. But 20,000 people was hearing the gospel of this man of God thundering the word of God. And God's gave me a set of pipes that I might be able to do the, thing, the same thing when times grow sour in our culture. And when we lose electricity, that we don't have to fret, we don't have to worry, that you'll be able to hear what I'm saying. Amen? Now... I don't want to go backwards too much, but it's important that we go forward. But again, I want to quickly reiterate the first article of the Shorter Westminster Catechism, which says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I've put in my notes that it's really challenging for me to, tra to traverse beyond this because of the attack against this in our Christian culture. Beloved, the chief end of mankind, the reason that you have been born, the reason that you have been reborn, is to glorify God. Beloved, I'm going to be so bold to say that any doctrine that, that is contrary to that preeminent truth is foul doctrine. That above and beyond all things, friend, we must glorify God. If everything goes wrong in your life... We are called of God to glorify Him. If everything goes right in your life, we're called of God to glorify Him. Beloved, it's not about you, nor is it about, about I. It's about the glory of God. And that's the very chief purpose in our creation and our recreation is to honor and glorify God. God saved you by His grace through faith, not to give you an escape from hell alone, but that you might glorify God in His redemptive work. God saved you unto His own glory. Everything God does, God does for His own glory. And we are of Him, cut from His own loin of loins, by, by the glory and the majesty of God, and all that we are and all that we are called to do is glorify God in all we say and do. Amen? So, whoops, Pastor Pete, he said that he didn't like his microphone because when he adjusted his glasses, it, it thundered, but that's okay. It just has to come with the territory. And so I made mention earlier, it's quite challenging for us, and it's really challenging for me to go beyond this preeminent doctrinal truth that we've been talking about into other truths simply because of the gross misappropriation of the gospel in our current religious culture. And I think that you all are very much aware, having listened to Christian radio and what's called Christian radio, what's called Christian television, and you have with your own eyes and your own ears seen and heard the misappropriation of the gospel or the miscontextualization of the gospel in, in a mainstream religion today, cultural religion today. 
I uh, I want to read you an email response that um, was sent to Sam Ketcher whenever he addressed, and also I as well did, um, with KXOJ promoting the book, The Shack. You all do know that that book has been born in the very pit, the very abyss of hell. It glorifies um, this whole uh, ecumenical issue, this whole heretical issue, and we talked about it somewhat with the emergent theology last week. It has been born for the, from this very same thing, and uh, let me find it here, and I'll read it to you. Now, this is sad. This is the, one, the director of um, our Christian radio, KXOJ. I'll read you Sam's. said, are you still promoting the shack? I've stopped listening to KXOJ because I can't support heresy. I hope this gets resolved. You should never rely on ORU for what you promote. They should rely on the word of God. This is the response. We will have to respectfully disagree on our opinions of this work of fiction. Again, I never under I would never I would understand if it were be pre, being proclaimed as truth, but as it is, it's an art. And the author has stated this over and over again. It is an angle that is causing people to think. In my life I found it better to be proactive than just to be reactive. Otherwise, I'm just allowing the actions of others to dictate my actions and therefore control me, and I end up constantly boycotting the things I see others doing wrong rather than getting on with my father's work. Beloved, if the, the church is to be against things, have they not read the gospel? We are to set ourselves against doctrinal error. Doctrinal apostasy, lies that come from the pit. I am greatly concerned when we have men that call themselves by the name of Jesus Christ that continue to be blind concerning apostate conditions that are overtaking what is called the church in our generation. Who is going to stand up against what is evil? Who is going to stand up for what is wrong and thereby stand for the truth? The reason that our world is succumbed with evil, and there's more of this and I won't read it, but it just gets, it gets worse. The reason that we have such moral degradation in our society is because we have been pacifist in the church against error and against sin and against wrongdoing and wrong being. We've kept our mouth silent when we should have been a voice. And beloved, I tell you that I will not support anything that calls itself by the name of Christ that is wrapped up in the very womb of doctrinal error and heresy. No way. No way. I will not. Beloved, you're better off to have no music than to have perverted music. I'm getting on my bandwagon, Mama, before it's time. Beloved, you must understand something, and I'm going to go on forward, please. I've got a lot to say. The love of pleasure that's inundated our society has crept into the hallowed sanctum of the church. Subsequently, the pulpit has cowered down and traded its birthright for a bowl of cultural porridge. And with this loss of biblical truth, there has in its place come a new gospel that is culturally palatable hyper-tolerant, seeker-sensitive, and benefit-driven. And this is the gospel that is accepted among the throngs of pleasure-pursuing parishioners simply because it's perceived as a, a means to the end of their own self-gratification through riches and through fame and through favor and through preeminence and a life that is filled with pleasure, the chief end of their own desires. Therefore, the, pul the pulpit spends its time watering these inordinate seeds of these men and women's wicked desires within its congregation and with man-made religious maladies in the name of church growth and cultural religious success. 
The true gospel, beloved, in these regions and in these churches is never preached among these seeker-sensitive crowds because of its offensive nature. You must understand the gospel of Jesus Christ is an offense to them that are lost. It's an offense to religious people. It's unpalatable in its demands. Beloved, the gospel of Jesus Christ will place demands upon you, demands in so much, demands so powerful and so rich that you cannot fulfill the least demand without the grace and power of the Lord Jesus Christ and of His Spirit. So here we find men that are not men, without spines, without character, without the Spirit of God that are, that are behind the pulpit giving in to the demands of a seeker-sensitive crowd. And hours and hours are spent in seminars. Hours are spent, money is spent, in conventions, instructing these spineless uh, puppets that stand in the pulpit how to use the benefits of the gospel to draw crowds and to build great and successful and wealthy ministries. I'm feeling sick about it. And all the while the Spirit of God is grieved. The true gospel is perverted and multitudes of unsuspecting churchgoers are bound by deception and they're bound by sin with no power to to break free from their dungeon of despair that is ultimately leading them to an irreversible eternal damnation. And I am very much aware that some of you think that I'm taking this far too serious. You may feel that I'm overreacting. You may feel that I'm reading into our religious culture a norm that is not as pronounced as I am mentioning. But, beloved, I truly believe it is much, much worse than I'm mentioning. I believe it's much, much worse than I'm mentioning. Earlier I made mention that the the greatest threat against the church today is not porn. It's not it's not eroticism, sensual. It's not any of that. It's doctrinal error. It's doctrinal apostasy. It doesn't say that in the last days that many will fall into pornography as they'll depart from the faith. The faith, the fundamentals, the foundational truths of the Word of God. How? Why? Because of doctrinal error. There are those that will creep into the church. They will creep into the church and they'll introduce a new gospel, which is not a gospel at all. And many not having any foundational truth or any doctrinal ability to be able to discern it as a lie will follow these lies and they will be given over to their lust after the the fullness of time. They'll be given over to the fullness of their lust. That's the greatest threat against the church in the hour in which you and I live. And I believe that this is much worse than what I'm mentioning. If you think I'm too radical, if you feel that I'm out of touch, that I'm concerned about the power of deception that's being asserted over you, I'm concerned about the power of deception that has control of your mind and has control of your heart. And it may be that you are a candidate for doctrinal apostasy. Beloved, If the benefits of the gospel are the only motive for your commitment to Christ, you are an idolater. You are an enemy of the gospel. You're an enemy of the sovereign king of all glory. For you are a lover of his gift, but not a lover of his person. Let me ask you a question. If the benefits of the gospel were stripped away, would you still love Jesus? Would your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ remain strong, steadfast, unwavering as a bulwark? Or would it fade away as the dew of the morning? Would it vanish away as a mist over the ocean? If the benefits of the gospel were taken away, would your commitment and loyalty to the person of Christ remain unwavering? I understand the challenge in that question. But listen, my friend, a love that finds its commitment only within the dividends that are accrued is a feigned love, a false love. Let me say that again. A love that finds its commitment within the dividends that are accrued is a feigned love. 
of false love, but a love that is birthed out of a passionate and abiding adoration for the character. That means the attributes that are ascribed to that individual that makes that person who they are. Attributes. But the love that is birthed out of a passion and an abiding adoration for the character of that person is a lasting and a pure love, regardless of the benefits that are ascribed to them. And it's my great concern that the multitudes of many church-attending, professing believers in Jesus Christ are in love with what He gives, but they are not in love with who He is in His divine character and attributes. And much of this dreadful condition is attributed to the pulpit and the rubbish that is being fed to the people of God. And it's unfortunate but true that multitudes of pulpiteers spend the majority of their time discoursing upon the benefits of the gospel while grossly neglecting the God of the gospel. And from this malady comes a generation of church-attending professors in Jesus Christ that are wonderfully and excellently taught about what Jesus Christ can give, but sadly they have no idea who Jesus is. This is our generation. And they have not been taught Christ. Just as the apostle said in Ephesians 4.20, but ye have not so learned Christ. Christ. Beloved, I hold you to account that if this pulpit reverses in its forward momentum and begins to hyperemphasize the benefits of redemption while ignoring and neglecting the God of redemption, cast me out as an unbeliever. I beg with you. I plead with you. Hold me accountable. Hold me accountable for the sake of your heart. Hold me accountable for the sake of the glory of God. Hold me accountable for the, cha- the sake of your children. Hold me accountable. That if this pulpit begins to reverse, and beloved, I have no intentions of so doing, but beloved, I'm a human. But if the day ever comes when I start preaching a benefit-driven gospel instead of a God-exalting and God-glorying gospel, beloved, remove me. I purposely, in the beginning, started this church to where I can be removed. The elders of this church have the authority and the power legally to remove me from the pulpit. And I did so purposely, knowing the, 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 the error of man and his, uh, his capacity to fall into error. And once again, beloved, I must mention that when the benefits of the gospel leave our peripheral vision and remove Christ from our direct, revision, our direct vision to replace him, then we are in doctrinal error. And the apostles addressed, uh, addressed to the Hebrew believers, he stated this, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith and everything in between. Looking unto Jesus. And this is a challenge for the church to fix our eyes, our direct vision to the person of Jesus Christ for our growth, for our maturity, and for our success. Looking unto Jesus, beloved, and the benefits are always and must always be and forevermore remain peripheral. You don't pursue benefits, you pursue Jesus. Will benefits come? Yes! The beloved, they come as a byproduct of your relationship with the person of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and not your pursuit of the benefits alone. I didn't marry my wife because I like to have sex with her. I married her because I love her. Nowhere in the Bible is it mentioned that we should remove Christ from the center of our focus and for us to fill our eyes with the benefits that make our life more comfortable and easier. And once again, beloved, it's the chief end of man to glorify God. And with this end before us, let's spend some time, energy, and passion going forth today and glorifying God as God. The Word of God says in Romans chapter 1, and I'm going to make some references to this this morning. In the, in the 21st verse of Romans 1, it says, Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not. As God, neither were they thankful, but they became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. I could camp out upon this text longer than your tail end can sit in that chair and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk about the glory of God, about the, the fallen state of man, about the, the confused state of many that go to church, and about how that can be alleviated and remedied, then most folks are not willing. 
I could camp out here, but it might take, it, it might, I put in my notes, it'd probably be it's a little bit over the top. And there's other things for us to, to learn in regard to true doctrine. Now, the second question, and friend, don't get me wrong, I'm not preaching the Westminster Catechism. These are doctrinal tenets, doctrinal truths that are the very essence of true God-ordained and sovereign gospel preaching. The first question is what? What is man's chief end? What was the answer? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy God forever. The second question is, what rule hath God given to direct us on how we may glorify and enjoy him? The answer is the word of God, is con which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the, listen to this word, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him, the word of God. We're going to talk this morning about the sufficiency of the scriptures. The sufficiency of the scriptures. The Old and the New Testament is the only rule. Say only rule. It's the only rule that instructs us on how we are to glorify God and to enjoy him. Beloved, it's not how you think that God should be glorified. It's not what your thoughts tell you. It's not what our culture teaches and instructs you on how you're to glorify God. It's what the word of God says that how you should glorify God. And it's the word of God appropriated in our life, fulfilled in the life of a man or a woman, just like you, that glorifies God and not by any other mechanism or means. Now, we discussed at length again uh, last time the first article, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever is the chief end of man. All true gospel doctrine flows from this truth. Any doctrinal matter, any scriptural matter, any truth that flows from another direction is a false gospel. Every subsequent truth must flow from this very foundation that God must be glorified as God. In all things. Now the second article of the Westminster Catechism gives us the means whereby the end is attained. What is the end? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so we learned the who. Now it's important that we learn the how. The how. And it's one thing for us to have an understanding that God must be glorified in all things, even in our lives, but it is wholly another thing for us to understand how this is to be what I've called fleshed out or to be fulfilled in our lives, practically applied into our lives. Being so, we must know that it's impossible for us to fulfill the chief end of man in the glory of God without the second revelation, which is the means to achieve the chief end. And the means to this end is the word of God. It's the word of God. The second article states that the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and the New Testament, is the only rule. It is the only rule to direct us on how we may glorify God and enjoy God. There's no greater enjoyment of the glory and the presence of God that whenever you are with him in his glory, glorifying him. But when you glorify him, you can enjoy him as God. When you're glorifying him, beloved, there are benefits that flow into your life that are nothing short of glorious and divine. The beloved, the benefit is given with a pleased heart of an almighty and a sovereign, majestic God begins to pour out his love and his character and his benefits upon those that are committed to him, that love him, that walk with him by faith, not by sight, not by feeling, not by emotion, but by faith in the word of God and the promise of God that is given in the holy writ of the word of God. And that God begins to pour into our lives supernatural and wonderful, sweet things that can by no other means be accomplished or received. But it's by the sovereignty of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, as we are with him and his glorying, glorifying him, lifting him up, then we might enjoy him. And not just his benefit, but him. Him. Yesterday I spent the whole day enjoying the company of my wife enjoying one another enjoying who she is 
fellowshipping with her, talking with her, discoursing with her, enjoying her attributes and her character, spending time. And, beloved, we need to spend time enjoying God, enjoying God. And, beloved, there's no enjoying of the triune Godhead unless he's being glorified. Unless he's being glorified as we're glorifying him with obedience by the word of the living God. Oh, beloved, then we can begin to experience the, the, the river of living water that flows into our character and our hearts. We can enjoy his sweet presence, that, that sweet communion with him as we're glorifying him. And there's no glorifying him apart from the word of God being applied into our lives on a daily basis. Do you people realize how much I love you? I wish those people that hated me that have been here would only realize that I love them. I wish they'd only realize that. And the offense of the cross is only a result of my greater love for him. So, friends, it's impossible for us to fulfill the chief end of man and the glorifying of God without the second revelation, which is the means to achieve that end. And that means is the word of God, the article of the second, uh, the second article of the, the Westminster Catechism says that the, the scriptures of the Old and the New Testament is the only rule to direct us on how we may glorify and enjoy God forever. Turn with me to Second Timothy, if you would, chapter three, please. Verse 13 of the third chapter of 2 Timothy says, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. What's that mean to you? It isn't going to get any better. Any doctrine that says it's going to get better is not the right doctrine. It is not going to get better out there. Do I believe that the church is going to get better? Yep. But I believe it's going to reduce in numerically. But it's going to increase in fervency and loyalty and commitment. I believe that culture and I believe that circumstances are going to become a crucible that's going to purify and separate, cleanse, and deem who's who and what's what. That's another sermon, isn't it? Deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Who's that whom? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto what? Salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God. And it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect. That word there means complete. And thoroughly furnished unto all good works. First of all, let me say this after I drink of water here. It's impossible to glorify God apart from his word. Let me say this again. It is impossible for us to glorify God apart from the word of God and the knowledge that is ascribed to the word of God. I read earlier in Romans chapter 1 where the apostle Paul mentioned a people that knew God, but they did not glorify him as God. We might ask, how can someone know God and not glorify God as God? 
And to this we must answer that the knowledge of God is inherent and instinctive within every man. It's the gospel. That's why I don't believe in atheists. I don't believe in them. There's not such a thing. The most professed and avowed atheist is not an atheist. God has instinctively and inherently placed within his heart the knowledge of God. He only glorifies himself instead of glorifies God. Every created being has an instinctive awareness of the existence of a creator. Listen to me. Not justifying faith, not converting grace, but instinctive awareness. And it's manifest within them according to the first chapter of Romans. So it's important for us to understand that the knowledge of God that is instinctive is not sufficient to the glorifying of God for these mentioned by the Apostle Paul had knowledge, but God was not glorified. Hello? So it's important for us to understand this. The instinctive, of the, the instinctive knowledge of God must lead us to the Word of God. Beloved, don't, don't drift off mentally from me here. This is important truth that we need. The instinctive knowledge of God that you and I have must lead us to the Word of God, whereby we learn by the very holy writ of God how God is glorified by such unglorious creatures such as we, such as you and I. How God is glorified by an unglorious creature such as you and me. The Word of God directs us upon that path. In my opening remarks, I made mention that it's impossible to glorify God apart from the Word of God. The Word of God is the rule, not only the rule, but the only rule, whereby we are directed upon how we must glorify God and to enjoy Him. As we mentioned earlier in this message, multitude after multitude of church-attending professors in Jesus Christ have a knowledge of God. Yet this knowledge cannot glorify God because the rule of their faith is opposed to and deviated from the written Word of God. You may ask this, the chief desire of their pursuit is merely the benefit of the gospel versus the God of the gospel. And this is knowledge disproportionate to truth. Let me say that again. The chief desire of their pursuit is merely the benefit of the gospel versus the God of the gospel. And this is knowledge that is disproportionate from the truth. Any knowledge, friend, look at me. Any knowledge that is disproportionate to the truth does not, neither can it, glorify God. Are you with me? Any knowledge that is disproportionate with truth, any knowledge of God that is disproportionate with the truth revealed to us by the Word of God cannot, will not, does not, and will never glorify God. Amen. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God that the man of God may be perfect, that the man of God might be complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. It might be correctly interpreted to say that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God, that the man of God might be perfect and thoroughly furnished unto the glory of God. For what value are the good works if they are not unto His glory? Amen? Beloved, I love, the, I love the preaching of the gospel, don't you? Beloved, I don't care whose mouth it comes from, as long as it's the gospel, I, I love to hear it. It rings in my ears as the majesty and the glory of God. Thank God for the preaching of the gospel or the good news about Jesus Christ. Now, one of the greatest obstacles that is standing between modern Christianity and the glory of God is in the great lack in the knowledge and confidence in the sufficiency of the Scriptures. A great host of church-attending and good-mannered people are knowledgeable in what their church is teaching. They're knowledgeable in what their denomination might believe. But they're altogether ignorant of what the inspired scriptures say. Being so, the foundation of their spiritual lives is laid by quaint sayings, 
partial truths of denominational or undenominational beliefs. Hello? Many of these doctrinal establishments, if stripped away of all of their money, if stripped away of their popularity, if stripped away of their cultural power, and their witty presentations would be found greatly lacking in purity of doctrine and sufficiency of scriptural standards. It's within these mentioned artifices that the doctrinal and scriptural deficiencies become palatable, even desirable. Let me explain that. There's something about the degenerate heart of man that loves money, power, popularity, witty presentation. There's something about fallen man that cleaves to those identities. And it's within these doctrinal and scriptural deficiencies that we see heresy becoming palatable and even desirable. They heap upon themselves teachers having itching ears. There's something within the degenerate heart of man, even within the carnal heart of redeemed man that has a voice that loves preeminence that loves wealth, because wealth signifies what? Power. Not only power, but what? Success. Beloved, I want you to listen to me clear. That if we judge the life and works of Jesus Christ by what we judge common church practice today, Jesus Christ was an utmost and abhorrence of a failure. A failure. Beloved, he was cast out of the church. The church leadership tried to crucify him. In fact, inevitably did. They chased him around the country. They mocked him. They ridiculed him. They rebuked him. They called him a devil. Are you with me? He was sold out for 30 pieces of silver by one of his own followers. Another one denied him three times after he had chopped off a soldier's ear with a sharp sword. They were all scattered after the crucifixion like to the winds of the earth. They all ran fear and terror while he laid there, bearing their sins. They left him. And he was all alone. And by our cultural church standards today, we would say that the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ was an absolute shipwreck and failure. Because we want money. We want to see fame. We want to see preeminence. We want to see large crowds. But, beloved, the gospel is still a sword that divides. The true man of God still yet may be a man of poverty and physical riches, but rich in the presence of the power of God. And we want to judge success by how fancy the suit of the preacher is and not how big the Holy Ghost is on the inside of him. I'm yelling again. I'm going to put a noise meter back here. Getting into the red zone. <laughs> But beloved, these things that we have mentioned, the love of money, the love of power, the love of the sight-driven and sensory-driven sense of success act as catalysts to inoculate good-intentioned people against their primary end, and that's to glorify God. They inoculate people. And we begin to live for those things that the carnal heart craves, preeminence, power, fortune, riches, money, the seeming successes of ministry. The beloved, it is set against, it inoculates us against the primary end, the calling of our heart and life, and that is to glorify God. Turn with me to Acts chapter 17. so blessed last week, weren't we, Pastor Pete? In Acts chapter 17, verse 10, it says this, that the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogues of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word 
with all readiness of mine. And they searched the scriptures, whether those things were so. I'm going to make a statement, and I want you to ponder as I explain. We will never be free from Rome until we abandon the practices of Rome. Let me explain. In the 15th and 16th century, in Roman Catholicism, and even before that time, and even subsequent to that time, the priests alone were permitted to handle and study the Word of God. The common man, such as you and I, were wholly unable to study the Word of God, and as it was only given to the learned priests so that they could understand the native tongues of the manuscripts. Being so, the church was controlled by what the people believed simply because they were unable to hear anything except what they were told by clergy. This is important that you understand this. The priest handled the word of God and instructed the people upon what they wanted them to know. From this, great historical but heretical beliefs were formed and practiced. And many of you here know the history of the Reformation. But Protestant reformers diligently labored to put the word of God into the hands of the common man, that the common man might be able to study and to search the scriptures as the Bereans did in the days of the apostles. Of course, we know that great men of God, such as William Tyndale and Wycliffe, were burned at the stake. They perished. They were burnt to death for their work in the placing of the word of God into the hands of the common man, such as you and I. Now, beloved, it is Rome that presses the injustice of clergy alone handling the scriptures, and it's not of Christ. Church, beloved family, listen to me. We must abandon the maligned practice that leaves the study of the scriptures wholly in the hands of the clergy. We must, as Christ's dear children, have a divine mandate and adhere to the divine mandate uh, from the word of God that tells us that we must study the word of God to show ourselves approved unto God. Second Timothy, if you want to flip over there, chapter 2, and I think you all know the scripture by heart. You can memorize it, probably have it memorized. Verse 15, study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightfully dividing the word of truth. Study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman. Amazing word there. The Greek literal translation means a laborer. A laborer. What do you do day in and day out? Beloved, that is making specific reference to common people studying the Word of God individually and showing themselves approved unto God in their search of the Scriptures. Showing themselves approved, searching and studying the Scriptures. Beloved, it's the common man and not the laity alone that is being mentioned. It's the common man, such as you and such as I, Beloved, scriptural neglect is the pathway to scriptural deviation. Scriptural neglect is the path that scriptural deviation trods upon. Scriptural deviation is the path that spiritual apostasy trods upon. And it's scriptural apostasy that reserves the mist of darkness forever for the apostate. This gross neglect of the study of the scriptures has led to the demise of the evangelical community. And beloved, I must sadly tell you that it is catastrophic. It is catastrophic. The gross neglect of the study of the scriptures 
has led to the demise of the evangelical community, and it is at an epidemic and a catastrophic proportion. I attribute this to Rome mindsets, leaving the diligent study of the Word of God in the hands of the clergy alone. Therefore, from this comes misinformed evangelicals that have no plumb line whereby they might measure the truth. They must simply rely upon what they have been told by clergy. And the scriptural purity and accuracy is left wholly upon the shoulders of the clergy, leaving the parishioner wholly vulnerable to his doctrine. Scriptural deficiency and apostasy is fueled by the lack of the people of God given to the study of the Holy Scriptures of God and the sufficiency of the Word of God. A book by George Marsden entitled Reforming Fundamentalism quotes a survey of student belief at one of the largest evangelical seminaries in the United States. The poll indicated that 85%, beloved, these are Bible college seminary students, 85% of them did not believe in the inerrancy of the Scripture, that the Scriptures are free from error. 85% of young men and young ladies that are entering into full-time evangelical ministry do not believe the Word of God is inerrant. The book also lists the results of a poll that was conducted in 1987 by Jeffrey Haddon of 10,000 American clergymen. Listen to this. They were asked whether they believe that the Scriptures are inspired and that they are inerrant, that they are the Word of God in faith, history, and secular matters. And these are the, fo the following percentage said no, they did not believe that. 95% of Episcopalians' laity out of 10,000 said they did not believe that the Word of God was inerrant and that the Scriptures are inspired of God. 87% of Methodist laity, 82% of, of Presbyterian laity, 77% of American Lutheran laity, and 67% of American Baptist laity said, no, we do not believe that the Word of God is inerrant and inspired. These are the leaders. Don't you think you need to know the Word of God? In 1996, Barna Research Group reported that among American uh, adults generally, 58% believe that the Bible is totally accurate in all of its teaching, and 45% believe that the Bible is absolutely accurate in everything. It can be taken absolutely literal. That support dropped between that poll and another poll that was taken in 2001 in the same people, Barna, reported that in 2001 that 41% of adults strongly agrees that the Bible is totally accurate in all that it teaches. 41%. American public's doing better than the American laity. They also published beliefs by denomination and metagroup. Above average, the Pentecostal and the Foursquare laity, 81% believed in the inerrancy of the Bible. That looks pretty good compared to the other, but there's still, what, 19% that don't? There's people attending those churches, friends. The Assembly of God, 77%. Non-denominational, mainly fundamentalists, 70%. Baptists, 66%. Seventh-day Adventists, 64% believed, of laity believed in the um, inerrancy and inspiration of the Holy Writ, the Scriptures of God, God's Word. The Presbyterian, 40%, the Methodists, 38%, the Lutherans, 34%, the Mormons hanging in at a 29%, the Catholics dropping into a 26%, and the Episcopalians, the Church of England, 22%, only 22% of their laity, their preachers, believe the Word of God is inspired of God and that it's inerrant. Beloved, I propose to you this morning that if we do not believe the inerrancy of the Word of God 
it's an absolute impossibility for us to be truly regenerated and born again. The inerrancy of the scriptures is a foundational truth that we must never waver from. The inerrancy of the scripture. While I'm aware of the margin of error in any poll, there is a certain disturbing realism that shows that serious, serious error has entered into and seized the evangelical church. And one of the catalysts, one of the catalysts, one of the proponents that's pushing this and causing this to take place is on the part of the individual evangelical and their failure to study the Word of God. Personally and diligently. And I know that this quasi is getting somewhat away from the scope of what we're talking about. But these issues are worth mentioning because we have to face them. Oh, beloved, the Word of God is the only means, the only means to whereby we might glorify God and enjoy God. The Word of God. It's acutely impossible for us to glorify God as God apart from the Word, apart from the Scriptures that are inerrant. The Scriptures are inerrant, inspired of God. And it's impossible for us as His beloved elect, His dear children, for us to glorify God as God apart from His Word. Beloved, it's also equally as important that we as parents teach these truths to our children. That we teach the children, our children, the Word of God. That we teach them to have disciplined study habits. That their very souls may find refuge in Jesus Christ. And that their little lives might be wholly given unto the glory of God. The Word of God is the only means whereby we glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It is not... The responsibility of the pastor to teach you the word. It is, it, is a, it is part of my calling. The beloved is the job of the Holy Ghost, the teacher, to teach you as you're on your knees with the Bible open, crying out, Lord, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. It's not the responsibility for the teen pastor. To teach your teenagers the word of God. Let me tell you, friend, God will not call Chooch to stand him before that day and hold him solely accountable for the spiritual life of your kids. He will hold you parents 100% accountable. The youth pastor only emphasizes the importance of what's being taught in the home by the parent. It's not Vernon and Sabrina's job to train your children up in the knowledge of the Word of God. It is your job as parents. They only structurally emphasize and reemphasize what you are teaching them and training them in the sanctum, in the, in the sanctuary of the home. You are the priest of your own home. You are to preach to them children, to your children daily, the Word of God, to instruct them and to teach them how to have discipline and diligent study habits. And it's not the job of the children's church worker, as that is from Rome. It's, it's Rome. We put back into the hands of Rome what God gave us back through the Reformation. God gave us back the word of God and we push it back into the hands of clergy and we wash our hands of the raising up and the teaching of the next generation in the home and we put it back in the hands of clergy and laity alone and beloved we've put back into the hands of Rome what God by his reformation grace gave back to us through the reformation work of men and women of God that knew God that were strengthened by God that walked with God that did great exploits for God. We'll continue in this line of thinking next week if God's grace permits to talk about the sufficiency of the Scriptures and the glorification of Christ Jesus.
and Almighty God and the precious Holy Spirit of God. Let's stand. Our prayer is that you have been blessed and encouraged by this sermon. To download full sermons, go to our website, www.sermonindex.com. You can contact us through the website, and please share a testimony of how this sermon has ministered to you.